0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is episode 178 of the show, and if you guys don't know what this is about by now, or if you're a first-time listener, here on the Conquering Columbus podcast, we bring interviews with some of the most incredible people from around Columbus who are doing inspiring things in our city, whether that's starting a new business, growing a business that they've been working with for a while. Or possibly doing something in the realm of medicine or science or anything else that we find relevant. And uh, today on the show, we were lucky enough to talk with Mark Tennis. And he and his team over at Simple Time Mixers are developing incredible mixers for your drinks that are all natural and organic. And I definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this interview. Learn a lot about Mark and his team and the things they have going on. As well as learn from maybe some of his experiences in the past. So stay tuned in. And as always, we hope you guys enjoy this episode. And we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit
1: founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting, positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org.
0: That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance
1: and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com.
0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mark Tennis joining us, and Mark is the president and founder of Simple Times LLC and previously Karate Cowboy Spirits. Simple Times Mixers bring all natural ingredients to drink mixes, and Karate Cowboy Spirits distilled sake here in Columbus. We're really excited to have Mark on the show to talk about all the initiatives his team has going on and his journey to where he's at today with Simple Times. Welcome to Conver Columbus, Mark. Thank you for having me.
1: So Usually the place where we like to start and kick things off is kind of talk about, you know, the background. So uh, the high points, milestones along your path to um, becoming an entrepreneur and, and the journey that you're on today. So, I mean, you can go back as deep as childhood. Yeah. You know, what kind of uh, instilled
2: the spirit in you? Well, I mean, big thing for me was I graduated from Ohio State in 2004 in an engineering capacity, which... After I did that for like three summers coming out of college, I knew I wasn't an engineer at all. And so went to a job fair and got an interview with Anheuser-Busch to basically work in their maintenance department. And so as I was doing that, I walked in day one and they're like, do you want to brew beer? I was like, I'm 21. I would love to brew beer. This is like career, you know, windfall number one. And so I loved that. I loved the whole science angle of it. I liked how I could apply engineering to it, but obviously loved the drinks industry as a whole. And I kind of went into it and telling my dad, I was like, this was like a three-year fun thing to do in my like younger twenties. And then they moved me to the East Coast for what was supposed to be an additional two-year assignment. and. When I left Columbus, it was 2006, Um, got deeper into brewing, went back to grad school, started doing finance and corporate strategy work and started consulting for companies like Bacardi. And then I fell in love with the spirits industry and finally had a client in South America with Heineken that ended up bringing me on to, to be in their marketing department as a director over Central America, Caribbean, and, and South American markets. So got a chance to work on a bunch of small brands, kind of niche brands in their pockets of the earth, but very large brands in their pockets. So in the Bahamas, I worked on a brand called Calic, it's Suriname, uh, we had a brand called Parvo, and so Panama, Haiti. So got to travel to all these countries and like see how these small brands got to operate in their landscape. And then I came back to New York and I would be like super disenfranchised by hearing about everybody's $10 million budgets when I had like a $10,000 budget in Haiti. But I loved that part of it. I loved like not having to worry about advertising budgets but rather like getting on the street level and figuring out how to like grow our business. And in a lot of these cases, we had brands that were bigger than the ones in the US but we had no budget. Um, So I kind of fell in love with that, kind of fell out of love with corporate America and my wife and I were kind of, like, looking at our lives and saying, like, this two-year assignment in New York has turned into nine, yet we never stopped calling Columbus home. So when it came time to start my own business, we pretty much kind of threw everything up in the air and said, like, if we were going to restart and go somewhere where we just want to live forever because you're starting a business, like, where would it be? And we are like, well, obviously, we're going to go back to Columbus because that's that was home for us. Um, we met at Ohio State. We've been married for at the time nine years now 13 and so we made the plunge to come back to columbus not literally knowing that like after a decade from 2006 to basically 2015 when we moved back here that the entire city had like completely turned over so like it pulled like 100 180 degrees like So we kind of moved back here, just wanted to reroute the family in the Midwest and was very familiar with Columbus, but kind of took all these spirits and beer and manufacturing and marketing and sales and tried to put it to good use to make like a product. And that's what I fell in love with in the spirits industry. So came back here to start a liquor company. And that was really the start of everything. And actually, like what I always say is like, start of like all the ignorance that like led us to the four and a half year journey that got us to now so that was kind of the kickoff of everything a little bit of corporate background a little bit more education a little bit of travel and then ultimately wanting to come home and start something and so you said you moved
1: to the east coast and you did uh, a master's program where did you move and then and where did you do that at
2: yeah i did um i got my mba from nyu I did a night program there while I was running the brewing department in Newark, New Jersey during the day. So that was fun, Uh, waking up at like 5.30 and managing the Teamsters in Newark, New Jersey, and then coming back in at night to the city and running and doing class for four hours a day. So I did that. And then we lived in Hoboken, New Jersey while we were doing that, which is basically the center point of those two, going out to Newark and then going back into the city. And then we moved, uh, my wife had worked in the city for um, in Manhattan for a little while, and so when my jobs moved into Manhattan, we ended up moving over to Brooklyn. So we lived in Brooklyn for three years, and then ultimately that was our last stop before back to Columbus. Any kids or anything while you were juggling that? We had our son in Brooklyn. So he was from zero to 18 months in Brooklyn, um, Park Slope specifically, which if folks are familiar with Brooklyn, it's like stroller capital of the world. So we're, we fit in very well to have a little young kid there. And that was like, ultimately it really, like I, we had the baby and I turned to my wife and I was like, we're at that point in our life, we've had successful corporate careers. I was about a decade in and as was she. And we are like, this is the time where now you have a kid, you're supposed to be making like secure, really good investment decisions, like, hunker down, start saving for the future. and I was like, I cannot go to bed anymore. like I hate my job. I want to go off and start my own thing. And I don't know if I'm ever gonna do it if we don't do it now. And I was like, there's something about that like when that wiring in yourself is so screwed up <laughs> so that when like you're supposed to be making all these really sound good decisions and all you can think about is uh, going off and starting your own thing. And I mean, it's the old adage of like, is this something you're going to regret for the rest of your life if you don't take the chance now? Cause if we probably would have waited till now we had our daughter here at Riverside and now they're six and four. And I was like, I don't know if I would have the balls to do it now. Like with a six and a four year old, like it's kind of like everything changes and you, you have those right moments and those inflection points in your life. And that was a big one for us. And we just, when it was supposed to go left, I only thought right and we went with it. So it was a good. It was a good. Uh, I don't know. A good. A good in, insight, or, or I guess like internal response to, to a big life change. And so then we had the baby and moved back to Columbus.
0: So you come back to Columbus and you start a company. What's that first iteration look like? What is the day one thing? So from zero to one, right? Yeah. First off, idea. Yep. What's the main concept? What's the main mission when you start? And then how do you get going? Yeah. And like what are the first steps to to starting? Company?
2: I think, in honesty, like in all honesty, it took a a hell of a lot of ignorance to get me through the first piece of it. I tried to start the first company using what I thought would have been the best way to do it, which is use 11 years of corporate experience, being very smart about brands and brand positioning, and being very smart about market opportunities and, and developing the corporate way of doing business. And then starting that up i quickly realized that that's probably not the way to start because we'll talk about the second venture but so what i did was i mean essentially i fell in love with international fusion projects that we had worked on i loved bringing outside perspective into into new markets which is what we had a lot of in brooklyn and so my idea was come with the spirit that essentially was underdeveloped and and on paper would be really smart. Like pick a category that's underdeveloped, ride a big wave as it develops out. Um, You know, all the things that we had learned was food and drink uh, work side by side, but drink lags food by quite a bit. So as you saw, like the proliferation of Mexican food growing in the United States, going from having to go to a Mexican restaurant to Taco Tuesday being at every bar in the country, um, you saw the the ride behind wave about five years later of tequila growth and Mexican beer growth. And so as Corona and Dos Equis and everything else. I've, i worked on Dos Equis a bit in the U S but we looked at that and we looked at how you could correlate those things and, and use the whole corporate mindset to say like, well, if we track avocado consumption per person, uh, per capita, we can pretty much outline how Mexican beer growth is going to go because where avocados are consumed, Mexican beer gets consumed. And then you can, figure out when you know idaho is going to be really big on mexican beer right so we did all these really smart studies which i I, you know kind of trained me in that more consulting mindset and then we i did the same on the outlet for sushi so we've had really cool brands here like fusion sushi that brought fast casual sushi to the midwest um that's been going on in other pockets of you know the country you see now sushi kind of proliferating into um Places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So in a lot of California fusion, Hudson Twenty Nine here, like Cameron uses it a lot in a lot of his uh, uh, different concepts. But you'll see sushi breaking into not just conventional, archaic, um, you know, just pure bread sushi accounts. They're playing everywhere, and so I think that you'll see that come with a growth in the Asian spirits and Asian beer market as well um in the u.s so we picked a category that we thought people would understand so that was really the whole concept was grow with the asian food movement um and use a authentic and real story to it so that's how we became you know associated with a sake brand was looked at sake we looked at shoshu which is a japanese liquor there's also baijo which is uh which is in china what we kind of tried to figure out was like Nobody really knew what a baijo was um, and nobody really knew what a shoshu was, but people knew what sake was. And we could try to like use that understanding of it to be a benefit. The most difficult part and now hindsight 2020 thing of not thinking of it from a corporate perspective is what are you advantaged to do as a startup when you're going from zero to one and you have flexibility and you have authenticity and you have this great, rich storytelling capability, but you don't have budget, you don't have... You know the gigantic sales force you don't have the attention of gigantic distributors that i was used to with a big company and when you don't have that picking a product that takes a lot of education and consumer know-how and yada yada to grow you know that we ran into a, a bit of a brick wall as we were going and so we tried it and we also were using a concept that wasn't proven in market yet so we tried a lot of things so my whole first two years was really just go out into a bar try and figure it out go into a different bar, try and figure that out. And as you know, there's you know, everything from a campus bar to high, high level craft cocktail bars and everything in between. And so we were testing things in different arenas. We were testing things at different types of liquor stores and grocery stores, and just trying to see what worked and what didn't. And that's really like, if you're taking a brand new to category thing, something you have to do, and then be really quick at analyzing and then stopping the things that aren't working, do more of the things that are working before you run out of money. And so that was I think one of the biggest learnings for me and then also just getting my feet wet and raising capital and understanding what partnerships we needed and you know one of the more one of the things I love about Columbus but was really difficult to, difficult about the way that I did it was this is such a very good collaborative community once you're ingrained in it and once you have the network in it right and I think one of the things that I, overshadowed which we were able to do really well is we had this network in columbus then we left for nine years and we came back and not only did everything switch over but all the people switched over and people had moved on and you know so you're basically coming into a community where you're trying to start a brand from scratch and don't know anybody didn't know who to pick out the phone with, didn't know any bar owners yet didn't know anything and so you know this has been a, a journey where definitely like network and community has to help to build you from that zero to one. And when you have to fight it up that hill, it becomes a lot more difficult, uh, which were probably some of the struggles that we felt in that whole like first year. And we also tried to launch it here and in Chicago while I was basically a one-man show trying to venture back and forth. So take no network plus not even investing as much time in Columbus as I need to created like a really tough first 365 for us. So. Yeah, I don't. I forget what even what we started on as a question, but that's that's kind of where that's kind of what our journey looked like in the first year. So in the beginning, just just make sure I
1: understand too. It's you weren't distilling your own product. You were taking another right.
2: product you were aware of, and
1: you were basically doing a massive market research experiment yeah. to figure out if you could plug that product into this ecosystem yeah. and what would take off. Did you did you have a vision that if it did take off, um, you would start distilling your own product? And when when did you start to see traction that made you say okay?
2: Karate um, Cowboy was the direction that we should go. Well, we, so we, we needed a place to manufacture and I knew from an investment strategy perspective, you know, the, the investment in a distillery makes a lot of sense when one of your major growth drivers is driving people to your distillery and where that authenticity story is such a huge part of the brand growth. Because we were doing such a different concept, which was like more about this Asian fusion concept, It was less important for us to necessarily own the distilling side of it. We actually started contract distilling it in Louisville when I first started it. And that was because we had a relationship there and we had, you know, there's other folks that I knew that worked with this company that was in Louisville. And and so we started it. And I actually had started the conversations with them six months, still left living in Brooklyn. And honestly, when I came back here, I didn't really know who Middle West Spirits was. I didn't know who Watershed was. I didn't know a lot of the things that I should have known about the local market when I got back here. So the idea was, I mean, originally was prove the concept and then move to larger and larger contract manufacturers, because the one like big oversight was that as a startup with flexibility, you should be able to have more attention to detail with your consumers and you should be able to change quickly. And the difficult thing with contract manufacturing is like you got to have big inventory loads, you got to do larger production runs, you can't change the product on a whim because you don't control that manufacturing side of it, right? So we learned that pretty quickly. Uh, We wanted to do some variants and we wanted to do some small tests and batches that we could test and market and continue to like learn from it and then blow up what did work. But that didn't really come for us until... Honestly, we were about 16 months into it. And then I met Ryan Lang, who's one of the founders of Middle West Spirits. And so when I met him, uh, we started talking and he was kind of one of those. Ryan is such, is such a great guy and we've had a, a really good working relationship. And he turned to me and said, why the hell are you making it in Louisville? Like, we can make that. Like, we can make what you said. Like, you, we can take your sake. We can, we can blend it the way that you guys are doing your blends. And we can improve upon the product. And so I dug in with him and took us about six months, but we went through his process and what we could do to polish it, to clean up the liquor a little bit. Also to modify our flavor profiles that we were looking at modifying and changing a lot of the things. We had two flavored products and we had an unflavored product. We were never able to get the quality at the previous distiller. Um, Ryan had just invested a ton in their distillery on upgrading their equipment. They were able to do smaller runs for us to help us out so then we got in with him so we were still contract manufacturing but it gave us the ability to improve the product you know improve product quality run smaller things that we could you know test and market and then have a a, a new like you know obviously local partner that we could learn and grow with if we needed future changes as we as we went so that seemed to fit really well for us and so that's when things, like, started clicking a little bit better for us. Also, kind of got us more involved in the local scene as we were part of the scene then at that point. But like I said, I mean, those were decisions that we wish we would have made, like, in product development before we had a product in market and before we thought we needed to change anything with the product itself. So, yeah.
1: And, and excuse my my ignorance on the uh, whole industry is probably uh, pretty abysmal. But, like, you say contract manufacturing, are you guys developing your own product at that point or are you... Is is contract manufacturing through an already established brand and they are contract manufacturing for you? So it's,
2: I mean, it's typically just, it's it's mostly you come with your recipe and your formula and what you want to do. I mean, at that point, we had developed flavors with a company that we were, you know, starting to, to test out that recipe that we had made with them. But it's, I mean, it's essentially just using their equipment to manufacture your brands and your product. In the case of like our first relationship, it was a true what they would call contract manufacturer, which is like, here's our recipes. Here's the like sake that we're sourcing from these regions of Japan. Here's the bottles we want to use. Here's a contract. We're going to pay you X amount per case. Go manufacture it. Um, The thing I loved about the partnership with Middle West is even though it was a contract manufacturing venture with each other, we were there. Like we were there with them. Like we were the ones running it through the filters. We were the ones helping them batch. We were tasting it before we bottled. We were, I mean like intimately, excuse me, involved in the process of the manufacturing piece of it. So I always say it was a bit more of like a light touch contract manufacturing because we wanted to be involved in it. It was part of our story. It was things that as we tasted, we could change. Whereas a true contract manufacturer is going to basically take whatever recipe you give them, and if it's great, great. If it's not, whatever. It's in the bottle. Here you go. Go and run with it. Right. And so, um, it was probably that intermediary step that we were looking for, where we could be involved in it, but we still didn't own any of the equipment, and we still didn't, you know, have that for growth. So, I think there's a lot of brands that kind of do things in various different phases of that, and you'll hear that across like. A lot of industries some folks just come up with a design and it goes on their t-shirts some of them own t-shirt presses and figure out all the you know mechanics of the fulfillment side and everything else too so we kind of took a soft touch to manufacturing which is then what led us to like our second venture where we went like all into manufacturing because we like just saw that as a big missed opportunity for us to grow and to try different things so
0: Hey there, Conkers. We're going to take a quick break in the show here to tell you about one of our sponsors, Mix Wonders. Creating a podcast is a ton of work, and a lot of heart and soul goes into your work, and that's why you want your audience to have the best listening experience possible. And that's why we work with Mix Wonders. Mix Wonders is an agency that helps podcasters like us get the most out of their audio. And whether you're spending four hours mixing your podcast each week, or you just can't seem to get the level of quality you want out of your audio, Mix Wonders makes it super simple to get pop star level audio at a low price. For a limited time, they are offering to mix your first episode for free. So just go to mixwonders.com, that's M-I-X-W-O-N-D-E-R-S.com to sign up for a free mix or consultation. Save time, sound professional, Mix Wonders.
1: Yeah, that vertical integration, I guess, uh, it makes sense. But the other final question that I had that you mentioned earlier was about um, when you are a distiller, most of the times you're doing that to push people into your distillery. So kind of, is there any more comments around that concept or, or the the ideology on why that is?
2: Well, I mean, I think for us we, I, I always say we're, the, we're so fortunate that we work in almost like an amusement park style industry, right? Like we don't make tires. People wanna come and see our products being made, they come. They get to experience it, they get to taste it, and they love to make a day of it. I mean, I think craft beer has blown that up as you see like craft beer tap rooms and people doing flights of beer and things like that. So it's become such an experience. Like craft as a whole has now become synonymous with the experiential side of it. What becomes difficult in that same like amusement park analogy is like we felt forever that we had this roller coaster but no amusement park So we were like running around town trying to show it off, but putting it on other people's tracks, which means we do tastings at festivals or do a tasting at a bar or do a tasting with a restaurant group or whatever. Right. But we never had that like, hey, come to our house, experience it, fall in love with the story of it and then grow. So I think that there's there's two sides to. You know every brand i think in the craft industry where folks are now expecting the experiential component of it or expecting the authenticity behind the brands that they want to consume it's almost imperative but then there's also like the concept of like well i don't you know i would say the fireball concept nobody knows where fireball is distilled nobody's going to the fireball distillery to check it out but it was a 50 state play and beyond and they went national then global then yada yada it actually started as Dr. McGilliguddy's schnapps brand, and then they flipped it to Fireball, pushed it in bars as a shop brand, and then like it blew up, right? So in that case, absolutely no need for like this history and authenticity story and craft story, but that's a very different concept with very different growth expectations and very different needs, right? Like, so, you you know, as, as most people look at brands and how they grow, That's a prime example of something that was like in an archaic, stuck, literally repositioned from this Dr. McGilliguddies to a fireball and then enjoyed media, like just meteoric rise to fame. But what a lot of people also don't know is that takes tens of millions of dollars of budget um, to market it, to push it, to grow it in all these communities, the amount of team members that you need to add to be ambassadors in every single city to grow it and yada yada so still experiential right they're still creating experiences they're just doing it at 10,000 bars instead of their own distillery right and so it's just kind of one of those ones where when we looked at it i think we became enamored by this idea of like let's grow a brand that resonates nationwide that we can grow in this like huge spike up and there's a good trend for that coming right now Whereas the other growth curve is much smaller, getting people to come out to your distillery or your brewery is you're limited by the number of people that can fit in the door and how many people can expand like within that. And so you still have to grow red. But the difference between the two is you also get gigantic amounts of loyalty when people come in and experience your brand and get the story and believe in what you're trying to do, get to see the owners or the distiller like through the window and like, oh my gosh, like I'm I'm in love with this brand now, um, and I'm going to tell everybody about it. It's just a different growth curve and a different amount of loyalty that you're looking at with the two. And I think when we were when I was first coming into it, my 11 years of corporate experience was way more heavily seated on that first story, which is grow nationwide, put budget behind it grow everywhere doesn't so much matter if you have a a brew pub you know whereas as we got into the community here and started realizing what are the strengths of a startup and what are the strengths of you know the ways that we can grow as a cpg or as a consumer packaged goods company as a whole like what is that how do we position to beat bigger and bigger players well it's almost you got to think small before you can just start thinking big And I think that's where we started localizing a bit more, bringing manufacturing back to here, bringing more ownership on the manufacturing side for that product. And then looking at the opportunities that were in front of our face, rather than looking at the opportunities that were at this macro economic level, right? Like it wasn't about where are the global trends going anymore? It was like, hey, you're out there in market selling liquor. What are people looking for? What are you looking for? And then how can you be stronger at that than what's in marketplace? And that's, I think what, that's when that the whole kind of light switch switched for us, or for me specifically, in doing that and then understanding where our next move was gonna be. Because we, we started the company to basically do, it's, it was called revolution experiment. It was do revolutionary things in an experimental way. Experiment, meaning test things in market, but then continue to do radical different things. And in our minds, when we started, it it was like, we're just gonna keep making new liquor brands. And so the whole tough next step for us was as we got Karate Cowboy off the ground and kind of understood a little bit more on how to play as a smaller player and how to analyze like what's working well as a company. It was like, okay, so now brand number two. So let's launch brand number two a little bit smarter. And we had like, two other liquor concepts that we were ready to like start to push and then this one non-alcohol concept that was completely different than our business model and we actually went non-alcoholic so that, that turned out to basically be the start of all the change
0: so there's a lot going on there but i think getting into simple times is that is that when simple times comes into play yeah i
2: mean for us i mean back to kind of the things that we were talking about like we were disadvantaged for you know doing karate cowboy Uh, and and picking a category that hasn't exist. Like we didn't have the advantage of being like, we're doing a vodka, which you all have had a vodka and it's smoother, right? Like you you only needed a couple points of talking points to like push focus on, or it has this taste or that blah, 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 and I'm gonna taste you on it. We had this uphill battle of like, it's different. It's gonna taste like this. You have to mix it like this. You've never made a drink with it before. How do you name it on your menu? So there are all these questions that were like surrounding our product. That just created confusion and a need for education so the non-alc side actually started from a point of like we have to drive higher volume and if we're going to drive higher volume we need to make this easier to use and easier to understand at the bar level and when we first started creating cocktails to sell it on bar menus we were seeing all the time like the drop off of either a bartender moves on or a bar manager moves on and then the cocktail recipe changes and then the, you know, the ingredients change to make the cocktail and every single time it changed or got worse, we got blamed as a brand, right? So it was never like this margarita is terrible because you use bad mix. It was always like this margarita is terrible because we hate Jose Cuervo or whatever, right? Like, and it was, so the brand was taking all the heat for it. So we started making these mixers because we knew fresh juice tasted the best. We knew if you proportioned it properly, like if you, if you got the right recipe mix on it, um, you could light light it on fire and, and folks would, would, would love it. And then if you made it super easy for the bar staff to like pour it, they would have no reason to go away from it, right? So it didn't create any more complexity for them. And so we started making simple times, literally just to say like, we made this craft cocktail, you can put these two things together, take them home and make them right as opposed to and it worked on the consumer side because we'd go to festivals like we did beer fest at Express live and we did 1500 cocktails everybody loved it and I said like I've never been never been so well received but feeling like the entire time you were at that event like I'm handing you like a homework assignment right like you love that cocktail here's four ingredients go find them and put them in together in this proportion and you can enjoy this at home and so we Really love the idea of like, pick up our bottle and pick up this bottle and you can make it at home. And so it worked and it worked at the bar level. It worked at the consumer level and it worked for like big special events where we needed to make 1500 cocktails and like not spend five days juicing things. And so that was the birth of Simple Times was let's bring this out to help our liquor brand. And then within a month, it was very much so like, let's turn to the rest of our community and see if they would want to use this as well. Um, and could we design around that and make unique offerings for different folks, so that they could all have a cocktail mixer that supported them in the craft spirits industry? So that was the start of it.
0: And so from from there, right? What when is that exactly?
2: So that would have been in um, 2017. So it was really the, the summer of 2017 was when I started developing it, okay. and then by September of 2017 we launched it.
0: Okay. And so you guys launch it in September. And moving forward, how have things changed over time? So it's been a couple of years. Yeah. What's, what's been the biggest changes? What have you noticed, you know, different from the marketing and the process for Karate Cowboy? Like what yep. were some of the key things that you saw that that made you feel, hey, this is where we got to buy in. This is where we want to make a push.
2: Well, I think we start, We first and foremost, we started it much slower. So I think one of the biggest learnings I took out of the spirit side was I wanted to own manufacturing. I wanted to be able to control that kind of that that vertical for us. I wanted to be able to put a super high quality product out and design small batch formats for that. Um, So I had a very pointed, you know, view on that. And so we all, and we also didn't invest a ton at the beginning. So it literally turned into, instead of being like super paper smart, it was like, let's get out there and prove it. And the whole first three months from Um, the end of 2017 we did nothing but direct sale markets like we literally just entered farmers markets we did like craft holiday shows and we would take a product and we literally would show up with it and be like taste it would you pay $13 for this or taste it would you you know and people bought it and then we would tweak the recipe or we'd be like hey if we came up with this new thing would you buy this new thing and so it really gave us like the true immediate feedback of of a products company which was not going around and market researching it and tasting it with people and saying like, do you like this? It was like, not only do you like it, but it's a, it's available to purchase right now. Will you buy it right now? And so that was a huge part for us because I think too often we look at test groups and you want to taste people on everything. You want to get their feedback on everything, but ultimately it really doesn't matter if they're not going to pull out their wallet and pay for it. Right? Like, so you haven't got the whole, recipe down until you understand what people are willing to pay for, but it was well received. So we kept developing new flavors. Um, at the time we were manufacturing it literally at a commissary kitchen. So we would wheel in some equipment. We would cook it on a stovetop, We would figure out all of our process points that we wanted to go through. And it grew from basically making it two gallons at a time to making it 10 gallons at a time to making it by the time we left the commissary kitchen, 700 gallons a week. And so it just took a lot of hard work and building a team around that and understanding how, what process points we wanted to make sure we kept and kept true to the form of the product. But it also expanded from two flavors to doing 28 flavors by the time we launched, like left that commissary kitchen. So, But we had to walk. And I mean, the number of times we got asked the question, like, would you like to go contract manufacture this somewhere else? Like, you now have the volume to necessitate that. You now... And we basically have said over and over again, it wouldn't let us grow the way we wanted to grow. We, we get a chance to work with community farmers on the produce side. We get a chance to work with our community on this side. We get the flexibility to create different recipes whenever we want on this side. And those are all things that I felt was very much so part of our growth strategy and our story. And so now looking back, it was about a year and two months in is when we took the plunge to get a new spot. And then that's when we started building out for our new kitchen. So we've only been in our new kitchen now for like three, three months. So we literally got over there at about, at about month 20, um, about month 2021. 20, and that's what we've now launched in Kahana, which now is like designed around our product and how we want to develop it. And our kitchen is obviously catered towards how we do our manufacturing process, as opposed to just being like, a random kitchen that we use,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, so, how has that? Been, what's the impact been like since moving there?
2: I mean, it's huge for us. I mean, it just a the standard of like work life for our people that work for us is way better. Um, you know, having having little things like having a dock door that they can pull pallets of fruit off of, where we used to have to go out in pouring rain sometimes and pull a case of fruit off of a semi truck and walk it into our commissary. Um, and do that a hundred times over. That was a real pain in the butt. Quality-wise, it really helps us because we can control every single element in the room in the production process, which is which is awesome. But the biggest thing is obviously like our future potential. Like we immediately doubled capacity. We now have storage capability to like triple again. It was really a play for the long term. There were intermediary steps that we could have taken where we knew we were gonna have to move out of it in another you know, two years of growth. And so we kind of took a bigger plunge to say like this thing can support us for the next five years of growth and took a bigger chunk out of it and needed to bring in another round of investment and all the tough decisions that a lot of companies are having to make as they decide that these are pivotal things that they need to do to grow. But something that I think is still very like much so the core of who we are. And then, you know, as we look to expand even further, like the, ability now to think small and bring people to our place that isn't a commissary kitchen and folks now can see it and tour and build their own cocktails and do their own things in our space like that's really been beneficial so we've seen that immediately like people come out for a tour and they're like this is great and you have a retail shop and you know all the things that we wanted to experience with you about a brand but it used to just be like us literally going to this commissary kitchen loading it in the back of our trunks and like trying to get the hell out to markets as quickly as possible now we actually have like a home to bring them to or the amusement park right for our amusement park rides <laughs> right so, which you is you get nice. your own track now yeah exactly so it's great i mean it's, it's been a really good game changer
1: for us so what's present day structure like? What does the team look like? Um, how are, where, where are you guys? You're all in one location, I'm assuming.
2: We are, yeah. I mean, so it went from literally being in a co-working space in Upper Arlington and the commissary kitchen and three satellite storage buildings and yada yada to now it's one one building. So we've got a small marketing team of two people. We've got um, a sales team of three people, uh, one based up in Cleveland, uh, two based here, and a couple delivery drivers that help them out and we've got a production team now of about eight people uh, that are running that the new kitchen side of it and then myself so it's grown significantly if you think about basically 18 months ago it was three of us like staring at each other we now have I think we counted up 15 16 um, on the docket now um, to finish out this year so that's been great but it's ultimately going to change again because the other piece is that we ran all of our own distribution so now as we like get into a deeper and more wide breadth. I mean, our vision is obviously to, to spread throughout the Midwest and to, to now start looking at this as like a regional slash national player in the next five years, we, we are going to need to obviously restructure the way that we do things. So even just direct distribution, like you just can't own that many trucks and you can't deliver to so many places and you can't control that piece of the puzzle. And nor do we necessarily need to, if we're so invested in the product and the branding and what we're trying to do to, grow in a
0: more widespread manner and talk about growth you know what do your goals look like here for the next few years what do you guys have on the, the docket what are the big things that are on your mind right now
2: yeah i mean it's it's a different game for sure i mean it used to be when we started it like if you do two markets do four markets and you'll double like right like so that's kind of how farmers markets and all that started which was the the origination of our story i think now our growth vision is more tied to a lot of our purpose, so we have a lot of different things in our in our long-term mission. Obviously, growth is the one that drives it all. Um, we've been fortunate enough to grow from if we call it year one, all of 2018 to 2019. We're looking at about like 175% growth. We hope to continue that as you know ways of continuing to add more bodies, add more employment. Um, but also have bigger impact in our community from a farmer perspective. You know, one of the things that we and I and I guess the question there is on the how side is more distributor partnerships, more national chain. So, you know, folks, we went into we went into giant eagles last year, started in three stores, and now we're in thirty-eight stores. We hope to start in Whole Foods here by the end of the year, and then that would be the same track. And then obviously you guys know many of the other national retailer you know, programs that exist that you can go down the line of, of, of next things to touch on when, we, when it gets into retail. Um, but the same exists in the bar restaurant world um, with regional chains and larger chains. We've done some work with uh, local cantina locally here, designing things for them where they have multiple accounts and we're looking to do that on a much bigger scale um, next year. So, you know, those are all part of the growth plan, but back to like the impact that we can make we took a lot of flack a little bit in the farmer's market scene, I think, from like the jump even to Giant Eagle, where it's like, yep, we're small and we're local and we're doing these things and we're supporting local farmers by going out and getting their produce. But now you're going to these big box stores and you're you're trying to grow the brand that way. Is there is there a inconsistency, You know, is what I always kind of like wanted to talk to folks about. And, and honestly, like you have to be really strong to the core of like, why are we doing this? And at the end of the day, we, says, we said, if this is a collaboration-oriented company and it's ultimately meant to give back to the community, like how do you impact a farmer's life? You don't do it by going and buying one bushel of fruit. You ultimately need to get on their growing patterns and schedule things out and help them to understand what's already pre-sold 12 months out from now, get into their programs. Well, the only way to do that is with scale. And so we had to grow a larger number of stores, we have to grow a larger number of stores again, if we want to like bring in more farmers into that network and that community, we're going to have to expand beyond just like Ohio farmers and start thinking about other regional farmers and other you know national farmers. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we're looking at now is a push to how do we support the U.S. farming industry um, as a whole, because there are certain things that we're just never going to be able to get in Ohio, unfortunately. Like lemons and limes and blood oranges and
0: you sure we got like global warming
2: going on yeah they could give change it like, yeah could it be like right and then we'll see we'll see where everything lays out after that but <laughs> yeah we did get that question once they're like everything's in ohio and we're like well not our pineapples like our pineapples are not quite grown in ohio <laughs> yeah um but you know we're, we're on a mission that if it's grown in ohio we can use it in ohio and then you know otherwise we need to be like looking at how we support the u.s and you know the u.s ag group as a whole because ultimately i think that's what makes us different too than a normal cocktail mixer company is it's less about you know oh do we have a cosmo and a margarita and a this and a that and it's more about we know where our ingredients come from we know we're responsibly sourcing we know we're making a high quality product and we know we're making unique recipes that are easy for consumers then we're doing the right thing but we still get the question all the time of like where's your margarita mix and where's your bloody mary mix we, we're going to continue to get that, I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And, uh, Mark, I think probably a good place to kind of pivot towards our last question of the show, yeah. which is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. Yep. So well, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how does it apply to your life and simple times in your career?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you're doing something you already know is right, you haven't pushed yourself far enough. You know, and we have I think we've lived that in the last two years. I think when the pivot for me happened is when I finally admitted that I don't know nearly anything and I had to get out of my comfort zone. And we do that with our people and we do that with the way that we run the business now too, which is if you're comfortable, you've pretty much already proven that that's something that works. Where we really succeed is when we obviously push ourselves outside of those bounds and explore new opportunities. And I think some folks get... A little terrified about that, but we always say it's not just like running completely loose and wild. It's just knowing when to meter and measure, and then retact and re-pivot. You know, we've we've had the fortunate, I think, naming of ourselves in the last couple of years that you know we we hear a lot of times that was a hell of a pivot that for us, and that only comes from being like willing to do things that you were just completely uncomfortable doing. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now, for me. Personally, it wasn't but two and a half years ago that I Googled how do you start a food company? I mean, I'm coming from a background of 12 years in the drinks industry, starting up a liquor company, only working in alcoholic beverages, working with the TTB at a national level, working with the ODLC or Ohio Department of Liquor Control here. My entire network was alcohol. And saying like, wow, but this opportunity exists and we want to do this completely different thing and we're going to start a food company to do it. On the surface it was just like, yeah, you make alcohol and you make mixers. Yeah, those two things go together. But behind the surface it's like they're completely different animals. And so in that case I was uncomfortable for a long way <laughs> through it getting food science background, you know, education courses, getting permits through the FDA, doing all those things, but honestly like if if it was just about relaxing and not progressing any further, we probably could have just stayed back and sold booze for a long time. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So yeah, we're going to keep doing it.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, no, nah, I don't think so either, Mark. I think you can tell a lot of your passion and your story and your excitement and you got big ideas and looking forward to seeing where I end up. But thanks so much for coming Absolutely. on and telling yeah. your story on our show.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's been fun. Yep, And kyper's that was Mark Tennis of Simple Times Mixers. If you guys want to learn more about them, Check out the links down in the show notes. Go visit their new kitchen. And I hope you guys enjoyed that episode a lot. We appreciate all of your support, and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares.
1: Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have a unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org.
0: Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based
1: facilities maintenance and management software, founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast, casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to
0: gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done.
1: to not just be status quo, a
2: desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.